This episode is sponsored by Mint Home Loans. With mortgage interest rates nearing all-time lows, now is the time to see what options you may qualify for. Make Mint Home Loans your trusted partner for all your mortgage needs. In today's times, your money matters. Shop local with Mint at 410-458-6847 for any home loan questions you may have. Welcome to Life's Tough. You can be tougher. I'm Dustin Planelt, your host. This is a show about life, and we talk to our guests about their purpose. And it's going to be tough. It's a journey. Today, we're going to learn from British author Julia Golding, who has written and published more than 50 books since embarking on her literary career. Most of Julia's books target children and teen audiences, though she has also written novels for adults. Her books span a range of genres, including historical fiction, fantasy, and romance. In addition, Julia has a crowdfunding campaign leading the charge to purchase and save the house, where J.R. Tolkien wrote The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. The house was built in 1924, and it's located at 20 North Moore Road in Oxford. The campaign started this past December. Its goal was to secure $6 million to secure the house, renovate it, and set up a literary center there as a tribute to Tolkien. Let's bring Julia on now. Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. And you have quite the story, and I'm very excited today to tell it to our audience. But it starts with me a question. I mean, we just talked about Project Northmore and the campaign to acquire the J.R. Tolkien home why is this so important to you? I mean, you have written a lot of books. We're going to talk today. But why this project? Well, I think it's because Tolkien was that writer, you know, the book that fell in my hands when I was about 10, that really switched me on to the whole idea of creating another world. It's that moment where you pick up a book and you don't want to put it down. You don't want to leave it. So I remember the summer reading all my way through all three books of Lord of the Rings getting to the end and immediately going back to the first book because I didn't want to exit. And I think Tolkien often does that to people. Once, you, once you're in Middle Earth, it seems such a great place to hang out um, that you don't want to give up on it. That's why people read all the other less readable parts of Tolkien, like the Silmarillion and the Lost Tales and all those ones. Um, and there was this added thing for me, which was not only I really enjoy it as a reader, but I wanted to know how to do that as a writer. So it sort of was the beginning of that ambition to start writing. But what was and it though, I Julie? Thought- I mean, in his writing, what was it that connected with you? And I, again, you're someone who's very acclaimed. You've you've done impossible things. But what was it about his writing? Because there's a lot of other authors you could have chosen. Well, talking about doing impossible things, he has done something which I would never in a million years do, which is he's created a fictional world that's so broad, so deep, so detailed. He spent years of his life on that same project, refining it. Uh, You know, famously, he started with the languages because that was his academic background. He invented entire languages that he had no expectation of anybody else speaking. 
the funny thing is that there are people today who speak those languages. I mean, they've bothered to go and learn them in the same way people learn Klingon and those other, you know, uh, invented fantasy languages. But Tolkien was really the first person to do this. And that is fascinating to me. It's like finding a craftsman. It's like watching Leonardo da Vinci or somebody like that, creating something way beyond your own capability. And it gives you something to aspire to. I don't want to do the same thing. I haven't got that element where I want to write something like him, but I want to find my own my own area which I can make mine that somebody says, yeah, that's what she did really well. That, that's, a, so that's it, a beautiful way of putting it. You know, it takes time to develop your purpose, that it takes hmm. these other people crossing your paths to give you your aha moment. So was it... Tolkien, or did it start before this? At what point in your life did you get your aha moment that you you knew what your purpose was and you knew it was going to take time and it was going to take a lot of time to get there? Um, I don't think it was quite as smooth as that in that when I was probably before reading Tolkien, you're right, I loved um, reading and I loved writing. And the first aha moment is when you write something and um, this is uh, many writers will say this you write your first little story you find some uh, willing relative or friend to read it to who's your first audience and they give you praise it's as simple as that it's oh wow you know I can make someone laugh I can make someone come on this journey with me and the the really different thing for me and that which has stayed true all my life is I can do lots of different careers and lots of different jobs but when I leave those jobs, careers, someone else steps in and does it. And that's fine. You know, the water closes over where I was and there's no trace that I was there. But in your own fiction, only you can create those characters, only you can create that world. So it's something unique. And that's where the craft element comes in, that um, that's the mission. It's to say, how many of these artifacts, these special places can I create? Because when I do finally pop my clogs, um, you know, and go off to the next thing, there will still be those elements left behind. And that's quite a nice thought. Th that's a beautiful um, footprint to help others follow the path, yeah. to help them on the journey. Own, yeah, particularly for my own, you know, it starts with your own family usually, but certainly for my own family and eventual, I know, the children's children kind of thing, there'll be that element still. It's your legacy if I'm allowed, that word I think is quite a powerful word. It's the legacy that you leave. It's a so beautiful word. Key. Yeah. And so I, I must um, ask you then, because you just talked about family, because I'm a dad. What's it like mm. to be a mom? Um, it's brilliant. I, do you know, there's so many things, uh, so many privileges of that role. I didn't like the actual being a, the, producing the children bit. That, that sucks. <laughs> I, but, I wouldn't want to do that either. So uh, between us. You know, before I had children, I sort of thought I'd be this wonderful earth mother type figure. I don't know if you have these dreams about yourself. I discovered that I really disliked being pregnant. Uh, I felt ill, horrible, <laughs> all taken over, alien, you know. But once the children are there, that is nothing. That says nothing. Um, and all the way along, people have said, oh, you know, they're really, wait till they're a teenager, all that stuff. I've, teenage kids are amazing. I mean, I've just had, I just think they're so wonderful seeing them develop their own um, interests and passions. It's a privilege. You've got a ringside seat to somebody's life. 
if you're still talking to them as a teenager. Um, <laughs> and now I've got to the stage where my teenagers are becoming young adults. My daughter, who's the eldest, she is the most capable person. I would, you know, I know that I'm going to be fine because she can, she's really well organized, all the things which perhaps her parents are not so strong on. This is the nice thing about genetics. It tends to skip generations. So the next lot come along and make up for your shortcomings. She is sporty and well-organized. So you can now work out what I am not. I, I can hear it. But I also, I, I hear a story of a mother. Many years ago, someone gave me advice when I was becoming a dad. Um, and he said this, that Dustin, you're preparing your kids for the day you are no longer here that you must treat every day with your kids like it would be the last day they have you. Because what will they remember of you? Did they only get the worst of you? Did they get the best of you? Was there a combination? But that's what you have done, that you are building a legacy that your kids can say, my mother did that. Yeah. She did the impossible and she was dedicated. So talk about dedication. Where do you find this fuel? I mean, most people get bored on their path. You found a way to channel it to go to the next journey. Well, I didn't start the writing journey till I was in my 30s. So there were things before that that uh, I've tried other things or well, not so much tried. It's more that I've passed through different phases. It's not like I've rejected stuff. Um, there were as a, a phase in my life when I was in the foreign office as a diplomat, as a civil servant, and I explored what the world was and how that functioned and how big government works, all that kind of stuff. And then there was a phase in my life where I did a doctorate at uh, Oxford University um, and had my two eldest children. And that was me saying, well, what's it like to really study something in great depth at, you know, university level, scholar scholarship level? And the next phase after that was I worked for uh, INGO, uh, International Non-Governmental Organization, Oxfam, as a campaigner, really, on... Um, protection of poor people in conflict areas and that was me working out again it's back to engagement with the world and politics but from a campaigning point of view um so all of these phases were i was dedicated to all of those roles as i did them but it came back to the thing i was saying a little bit earlier about all of those jobs can be done by other people except perhaps the doctorate, that was my, I, that was my work. That was tough. Else. I mean, no one could, you couldn't <laughs> be like a cheat. <laughs> you actually had to no. put in the time. No, that, that was quite funny because that was combined with um, really, you know, young parenthood. So I vividly remembered. So the first part of the doctorate was um, a master's where they actually had proper exams. And in Oxford, you have to turn up in your gown with your, um, they call it sub fusk. It's like the white shirt black trousers, skirts, black cloak, like Harry Potter cloak, hat, you know, mortarboard, uh, all the rest of it. And the guys wear bow ties. And you have to go to the exam like this. So there was I. But in the background, I had a one-year-old child with chicken pox. And I was sitting there in this hall of other students thinking, I bet I'm the only person in here all of us in our ridiculous fancy dress who are sitting here thinking about chicken pots and is, is she all right with her grand, you know, grandmother whilst I'm doing this exam. So uh, keeps your feet on the ground. So I, I, I then ha I wrote this down kind of as you were saying that. So look, there have been a number of prolific 
authors throughout time that have been driven to madness. That the deeper you go down these rabbit holes, the more you you become all consumed, yet you found an anchor along the way. Was it your kids? Who kept you from going to that deep end? Um, I hmm, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, certainly, certainly family, because I've got a lovely husband as well. He must get a look in here because all of this isn't done on my own. <laughs> Tell him to come uh, in. Hey, how you doing? I'm Dustin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks, thanks, husband of 30, almost 30 years. Um, I'm married young. You are married, yeah. You can't be a day over 35. I mean, my gosh, Julia, you look amazing. Absolutely. I did marry at 23, which I never regretted. It was a great time to get married. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so the, so, you know, the family base, that, that's, that's solid. I also have a a, a personal faith. So I come at it as a, a Christian. So um, there in that, what I think is quite rooting is I like the sort of prayer and, meditation and the sense that you handing things over it's the let let your burdens cast them on jesus kind of side of it which i think is really good whatever place you're coming from in a faith perspective or no faith perspective i think it's really good to let go of that those things for me that's a christian interpretation of that but you know for other people it might be different sure and then there's also in the actual activity of writing for me it's about joy so what I'm trying to produce isn't uh, not trying to make a a statement in the sense of shock people or make them miserable or you know shake them out of their. I'm trying to create things which are joyful experiences to read. Um, you know, you, you go to other writers if you want to have all of that. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely, and you know it's. A high performance mind, you know, it's this driving in the, the Ferrari all the time approach, yet it's these anchors in life that those of us who have been blessed with that curse, that you you think a little bit longer than most, you, you don't give up when others kind of seem to quit, that it's finding that thing to be attached to and allowing that to be your guide, be it your faith, be it your family. So talk about your faith. It, was this from birth? Was it the, in the earliest memories or throughout your journey, did you come to your own conclusion? Um, not from birth. Um, I grew up in a sort of fairly uh, near London uh, upbringing in the sort of seventies, eighties. So there was a sort of passive Christian background going on uh, at that time, which I think is less the case now. Um, so I was certainly familiar with the whole routine of church going and that kind of thing. But it was when I was about seventeen that I started to ask the questions of, well, what is all this about? And I actually did have a sort of moment of commitment at that stage, which which I've stuck to. It's not all plain sailing in the same way the literary career is not all plain sailing. I'm I'm very much um, a person who I, I do tend to see all sides. There's I think it goes with the creative personality. Um, Keats has this phrase keeps the poet this is of negative capability that in order to imagine yourself into all sorts of different people as characters that you are able to sort of negate the self and imagine yourself as the bird on the twig or the he uses the image of a billiard ball rolling across a table which is quite a that's great imagine that um and so i when i'm thinking about faith i'm always thinking of all the arguments against it all the way around that particular 
nexus of it, of reasons to believe God or not believe in God. And when it comes down to where I settle, it is in the, on the faith side of that. Um, but I'm not somebody who's kind of so sure of everything. That- I, I, you know, and I, I have that same kind of take to me is that is live, live the life that you would be proud of knowing that you're not perfect. You're going to fail often, but you need to take risks and you got to stand up to bullies and you got to leave this world far better than the way you found it. And that how how you get there is putting people like you and, and others in your journey, people that you were supposed to meet along the way. So how did you manage to produce only 50 books? Why not 51? Why not 70? Because I have to imagine you will always come up with that next idea. So why not more? Shall I let you into a secret? It's more than that. Well, tell it's me. Actually about, it's about 60 now, but I've stopped counting because some of those will be short things I do for kids, you know, which uh, I don't recount really them as full novels, but I'm always writing. And recently, my adventure, my big adventure of the last couple of years is I've moved into screenwriting. So I haven't yet had any... I've got three live projects on that, which I'm working with producers on. And that is... None of them have been filmed yet. And That's exciting. Know, screen, but but regardless, Julia, that's, so that's a beautiful yeah. thing to have this goal, that even though you've accomplished so much, you still say, but that's an area I know I can do. And it's going to be different and unique and weird and exciting yeah. that it takes that risk. Have you always been a risk taker? No, no. I mean, certainly, I think it's. I think I. I don't take physical risks. I'm not a kind of person who goes say, "Hey, isn't it a great idea to go on a roller coaster?" Or look, there's a bungee jump. Let's go do that. I'm not that. I have no desire to skydive for my 60th birthday or anything like that. <laughs> Me either, by the way. I'm, I'm afraid of heights. But I suppose in a way I have challenged myself with taking on things which I might not think I could do. So leaving university um, the first time and joining the foreign office and very rapidly finding myself abroad representing my government at fairly high level meetings. And I was still in my early 20s. Um, You have to get over. I think it's a thing which a lot of women suffer from. but I'm sure a lot of people do as men and women, which is imposter syndrome. That thing of thinking, oh, I shouldn't be here. Everybody else in the room is more qualified than me. In my early 20s, it probably was true that everyone else was more qualified than me. <laughs> but I did it anyway because I thought, well, I can do You know, someone else has put me in this position. They've they've selected me because they think I can do it. So therefore, I, who am I? You know, I'm going to go and fail courageously if I fail or I might succeed. And... I, that's what I, I think that's the constant that I've done that all the way through. So um, being a writer, it's that I started off writing for children, but I've moved to writing for um, young adults. And then more recently in the last five years or so writing for adults. And every time I've made that change, I've never thought, oh, I'm only a children's writer. I've always thought I'm a storyteller. I can do this. And the screenwriting is the same thing. I thought, well, I know how stories work. Yeah. I think it's a bit like the comparison is someone like um, people who are musical seem to be able to pick up other instruments. So they may start playing the clarinet, but you then find they're also able to play the piano and the trumpet. For me, that's the equivalent. I've got the sense of how the music part, the story part of this works. So if I move across, then I'm taking a skill with me. 
So I'm not an imposter. Uh, and, that's, and I think that's a really important lesson in life. It's one I would want to pass on to my own children, which is, um, you know, just forget imposter syndrome. That's, that's you, a great, you know, way, of, great way of putting it. You're not offering to do an operation you're not qualified for. I mean, I'm not being stupid like that. You've got to sure. obviously be realistic that you've got some training, but um, have a go. And don't everybody else in the room is probably also doubting themselves, and if they're not, they're probably the problems. They probably are the problems. You know, on the show, we've we've had the opportunity to talk to a post-apocalyptic author, Nicholas Stan- Sansbury Smith, Orson Scott Card. Um, And one of the things that I found that with my own goals or dreams for on the film side that we create or the podcast is I get to meet my icons. I got to meet Gene Simmons recently and Jerry Springer. And what's it like for you that that you don't get to meet the Tolkien, that you don't get to meet some, and that's the world of writing that the people that have inspired you and others like you and now me, that, that those icons aren't here. Who would you talk to? Oh, um, if I could bring them back from... You, you can know. bring them back and say, you get 10 <laughs> minutes, just, <laughs> who'd you talk to? I, I wonder if I wonder if Tolkien would get me. I've got a feeling we're from such different um, eras that he might find it quite difficult. I mean, he's from an era where they, he would have talked to other men. Uh, and I probably would have had to have um, done a bit of cross-dressing and grown a beard and spoke to pipe for him to feel <laughs> happy with me. But I'd, I'd do that to get a conversation with Tolkien, definitely. Tolkien. Uh, he was he was a very good correspondent to women. Um, so, but I, I don't know, and perhaps there were some friendships, I'm not so sure. But anyway, so yeah, I'd love to talk to Tolkien, but I think if I really could go back in time and find someone to have a chat with, I would like tea with Jane Austen. Because I think she and I would get on like a house on fire. And tell me what that conversation would be. Like, all right, we're sitting at a table and you've got Jane Austen with you. What would you start with? Like, what would be that opening statement? Well, I think she would just be, we'd have to spend some time together so that we're looking at the same thing. So then we could start gossiping. (laughs) And it's the gossip that is that Miss Marple style style gossip, which has an, um, an aim and it's very astute and it's worked out who everybody is. So I think it'd be hilarious to go on holiday with her, for example. You know that thing where you turn up on holiday at the hotel and you're working out all these people you're on holiday with. Or a cruise, except not during COVID, a cruise (laughs) of Jane Austen where we can, you know, look at everybody and have a laugh, have a few drinks, do a bit of dancing. I think that'd be really fun. It's a beautiful story. And it's something that I think that this generation today is missing that they are not reading anymore that they watch a movie and they go oh i, I saw the, the the lord of the rings and you're saying yeah. there's an entire world that if you were only to open that book you would say gosh if i could sit down with J.R. tolkien if i could only sit down with with jane austen if that 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 magic why do you think this generation and the next generation will have less interest what's causing it to, on the point of the uh, the films of Lord of the Rings, I think Peter Jackson did a very good job. Uh, you know, all credit to him. But you are right that what is missing is the there's there's a there's a unique tone that isn't reflected in the films. Um, so, for example, one of the things that I find missing is that the description of the landscapes are are sort of peculiarly, um, there's, there's, there's lots of really English 
places and flora and fauna and it feels like really rooted in a reality a sort of European reality because that's of course was his frame of reference um, so it has a rootedness which isn't fantasy fantasy seems as though it floats a little bit things are so beautiful that they when you look at the middle earth landscapes they're so beautiful uh, and probably the coloring is pushed that bit further to make them look even more so that it's feels like a different world whereas in fact Tolkien thought he was writing a, a prehistory for Europe for for England he wasn't satisfied with the myths and legends we'd inherited so he thought he'd do his own um, and of course you get edits that are made for uh, storytelling purposes in the context of a film so some really interesting elements are, are completely missing so if anyone listening to this has only seen the films it would be a really lovely experience to take your time and go back and spend the time reading the books because you'll find there's all sorts of, you know, the, the tapestry is much bigger, much richer than you've seen, which is great because the source material um, is better, which, you know, that's good, isn't it? And I think that's the key thing about the generation difference is that it's obviously much quicker to watch a film because even if you sit down and watch the extended editions you're only spending i don't know 12 hours uh of your time but to sit down and read the books you'll be spending several weeks of your time um assuming you're not reading it all you know <laughs> without a break and i quite like the idea that you absorb yourself in a world for a bit longer than it takes to binge on a box set because it's whilst you're interacting with the book and walking around with it in yeah. your head that you you make it your own. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would take it a bit further to say that it would probably even inspire you to become something, to do something, to drive yourself, to form new relationships, new alliances, that it would stimulate you as your ancestors were stimulated. They didn't have a box in front of them playing out a movie. They had a written document, if they had that, to tell them the story. Uh, to tell them about their family, to tell them about that war that happened or that thing. And that is what you are doing. You are ultimately doing the thing our heirs did for us, that you're leaving behind the story. And you're creating this using modern technology and other things that we have access today to, to make sure the story is factual, but it's also inspiring the next. So Yeah, it comes down to words, doesn't it? One of my favorite quotes from the Harry Potter sequence comes in the last one, where Dumbledore says... Um, words hold an inexhaustible treasure, uh, magic. You know, basically the real magic is in words. It's like J.K. Rowling laying, laying it out there as to what she thinks magic is really. Um, and that's true because the word spell, as in magic spell, is taken from the word meaning to speak. I think it's German, isn't it, in, in origin? So we are creating spells. We're creating magic when we're writing. And every film starts with a script, so the magic is also underlying a film. It starts with the storyteller. So final question for you. Who's the toughest person you've ever known, directly or indirectly? Um, it's not, it's interesting you've asked that because of course, tough, you, tough guy, you know, you think it's some sort of uh, the rock or somebody like that. But actually I think it's a person who um, survives the hardest things, but yet comes out the most beautiful at the end of it. 
And I've met several people who experienced the Second World War, who emerged the other side of that. Um, one in particular was a very dear friend of ours called Stephen Verney, who um, ended up as a bishop at the end of his life. But he um, went into the war as a conscientious objector and he joined the ambulance brigade. And he then saw and understood the sort of the full horrors of the Nazi era. Uh, and so he decided he had to sign up on the combat side. And he then got parachuted with the um, special operations executive, like the sort of, uh, you know, the went behind the lines into, um, I think it was Cyprus, where he was supposed to, was it Crete? Might have been Crete. It was Crete. Yeah, it was Crete, um, where he was supposed to help subvert the German officers there. That was their job, to go and persuade the German officers to turn against Hitler. So there was all of these experiences of being in danger of your life the whole time. Um, but after it, he came out of that experience as a most, the gentlest man ever. And he set up this reconciliation um, process between... Um, I think it was Dresden and Coventry, both of which had been firebombed by the two opposing sides. And it's called the Cross of Nails process, where he picked up some of the burnt nails in the Coventry Cathedral and they made a cross and then made links with Dresden. So, um, you know, to actually say we've this is just after the war, it, while things are still raw and everybody knows the horrors of what happened, He's already thinking what we've got to do next is reconciliation. Um, and he he lived to his 90s. He was a very dear friend and uh, a lovely man. And I tell you, the quality about him, which I admired most, was that when you were talking to him, he made you feel as though he was really listening to you. And that's being tough, isn't it? Because there's a lot of people who are just waiting for the chance to put in what they want to say but he would really listen. So that's, for me, that's a true toughness because he stuck, he stuck to his core goodness all the way through some pretty frightening and horrendous experiences and came out promoting peace, love, reconciliation. I've known others as well, but um, yeah, Stephen Verney. Life's tough. Stephen Verney was tougher. Thank you again, Julia, for sharing your story on the Life's Tough Podcast. Thank you again, Julia, for joining us on the show. What was your takeaway? Mine was this. J.Q. Rowling once said that I believe something very magical can happen when you read a good book. Julia Golding also said that life flies away like a dream. I challenge you. What are you dreaming about? What can be done, but what would it take to get there? What is your purpose? Who's in your community? Who's in your family? What is your anchor? And what, ultimately, will you leave behind? Life's tough. You can't be tougher. Thanks again, everybody. See you next time.